Well, have you ever read a book or a movie, watched a movie, where the ending left you totally dissatisfied? You felt like more should have been said, some conflict was left unresolved, or at least you wanted to see more of what happened next? I remember being younger, reading the classic by Alexander Dumas, The Three Musketeers, and the ending left me wanting more. After you spend hundreds of pages investing into these characters, I just wanted to see what happened next to this group of men. Or maybe to use a more contemporary example that you're all, I'm sure, familiar with, take Star Wars. The second of the original three movies ends with the hero, Luke Skywalker, getting his hand cut off and finding out that Darth Vader is his father. And that's how the movie ends. That's it. I mean, that's like the most dissatisfying ending to a movie ever. And if you can just imagine, what if that was it? There was no third movie. That was just the end. It would be so frustrating. Now, by the way, I'm sorry if I spoiled that for you, but you have had 36 years to watch that movie, so that's on you. Anyway, we like nice, tidy endings that resolve all conflicts, tie up loose ends, give our characters a nice send-off, but we don't always get a nice, tidy ending. Sometimes we're left wanting more. In Scripture, for example, the book of Acts leaves us, leaves me, feeling like we want more. The book of Acts tells the early history of the church, and it ends with Paul, one of the main characters, and he is left in prison awaiting trial, and and that's it. We don't know what happens next from Acts. Will he get out? Will he be executed? We don't know from Acts. That's when Luke was writing. That's all we get. It leaves us certainly wanting more. The same happens with Mark's gospel. If you take your Bibles open to Mark 16, Mark, he has this very abrupt and unexpected ending. You get to the final chapter where the angel announces to the women that Jesus has risen from the dead, Then the angel says this, Mark 16, verse 7 and 8, But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Verse 8 says, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's it. That's the end of Mark's gospel. His telling of good news, the good news of Jesus, ends with the women fleeing the tomb in fear and silence. And talk about a shocking ending that leaves you wanting more. What about Jesus meeting his disciples in Galilee? What about the other resurrection appearances? What about Jesus restoring Peter? What about his ascension into heaven? Mark could have included so much more, but he didn't. He just leaves it at that, which begs so many questions. Why didn't he include more? Why does he end here? What's he trying to teach by this ending? These are all good and valid questions, but when it comes to the ending of Mark, the questions just keep on coming. I see a lot of you looking confused, I think, looking at your Bible, because you're saying, wait, my Mark doesn't end at verse 8. Chances are your version of Scripture, verse 8, is not the last verse you're reading there. You have verses 9 through 20, 12 more verses that give a much longer ending to Mark's account. But there's a catch, because chances are, look in your Bible, verses 9 through 20, are in brackets. I don't know what Bible translation you have, but if you really want to see what I'm talking about, grab a pew Bible, page 42 in the New Testament, will take you to Mark 16, that's the NASB, and you'll see these verses, they're in brackets, 9 through 20. And then verse 9 has this note, and you read the tiny little print, the note says, later MSS add verses 9 through 20. MSS, of course, stands for manuscripts. So here's a part in your Bible, and it's telling you that the early manuscripts don't contain verses 9 through 20. 
Now to this, you're probably thinking, what, what is going on? What, what is up with that? And suddenly a flood of questions start to enter your mind. First off, okay, well, which is it? What's the real ending of Mark? Is it verse 8? Is it verse 20? Which one? It actually gets more complicated because if you look at the very end of verse 20, you'll see a second set of brackets with a verse in italics, and that's a whole other ending. So which one is it? Where does Mark's gospel properly end? But you see, the fact that this is even a question spawns more questions. Why is this a question? How is it that we might not know where Mark ends? Isn't that a problem? Because, you know, how can we trust the Bible as God's word if we don't even know what belongs or what doesn't belong? Does this cast doubt on the Bible's credibility? Also, if this ending doesn't belong, how can we tell? How did it get here? But our questions are not finished because now passages like this lead us to even more fundamental passages about the Bible. For example, how did we even get the Bible? Where did the Bible come from? Who determines what should be included in the Bible and what should not? And how are such determinations made? And can you even come away from a study like this with confidence in the Bible as as God's word? Credible. These are all good, valid, and important questions that need to be answered. Have you ever had these questions? I bet you have. And would you like to know the answers? I I bet you would. If you're like me, you have no problem believing in the supernatural, but you also don't want to waste your time and your life on a fairy tale. We base our entire belief system on the Bible. So nothing is more fundamental to us than the Bible's reliability. Is it real or not? Did it come from God or not? Do we have an accurate copy and translation of the original or not? If not, forget about it. Don't waste your time. If you can't trust the word, why bother? How can you make life-changing decisions and practices without total confidence that this is God's word and will for mankind? You can't. But if we can know, if we can know that this came from God, if we can know that the Bible that we hold today is a faithful, accurate, trustworthy copy of the original writings of the apostles and prophets, then we can have total confidence in this as the word of God. Either way, of course, you can see how this study changes everything. It doesn't get more important than this when it comes to the Christian faith. This is the building blocks. And this morning, we're going to tackle some of these questions. October 13th, 2013. That's when we started going through Mark's gospel verse by verse. Here we are almost three years later. Today we are finishing Mark's gospel. A few of you here, this might be your first Sunday. You picked the last Sunday you could to to have a sermon on Mark. 105 messages to be exact. But we've added plenty of bonus sermons in between, as you know, scattered throughout. Speaking of which, about about a month ago, we came to the final passage in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, the account of Christ's resurrection. Then we added in about a month's worth worth of uh, extra sermons on the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, because that is another one of those defining truths of the Christian faith. But with all that's done now, and, and now it's time to return to Mark and to finish off this book. Of course, if you're going to do that, you have to contend with Mark's special ending. If you aim to go through the Bible, or book of the Bible, verse by verse, you're going to run into these verses, and then you can't just skip them. And as a quick side note, 
for you all here, if you ever leave this church, you move, you just go away, or for whatever reason, just promise me you'll go to a church that preaches the word expositionally, preferably verse by verse. Because that's the only way you really get the whole counsel of the word over time. It means you can't skip the hard stuff. You can't skip the challenging passages. You have to face them head on. But that's a good thing because you need to be equipped with the answers to even the hard questions, right? You don't want to be one of those churches that just sticks its head in the sand, keeps things light and fluffy, pretends there are no challenges to the scriptures. Rather, you want to meet those challenges and pursue the truth, even if it requires hard work and study. And I trust that's why you're at this church. Well, the end of Mark's gospel presents us with one such challenge to the very text of Scripture itself. For most places in the Bible, there's no question as to what the original text said. But here there is a question. You think, how is that possible? What does that mean? How can we tell? What does that mean for the rest of the Scripture? Well, these are questions we need to answer. So here's what we're going to try and do this morning. Our primary goal is to finish off Mark's gospel. To do that, we need to figure out what's going on with his ending. Where does it really end? And we'll go from there. And that, that's what we're going to do first. And what about those more fundamental questions, though? Well, I'm going to do my best to try and give you some helpful, satisfying answers. But at the same time, we can't study everything in, in this one sermon. So here's my plan. This actually been my plan for quite some time because I knew this passage was coming. In the very near future, we're going to devote an entire Sunday evening series, not just a Sunday evening, but a Sunday evening series to how we got the Bible. How we got the Bible. Something I haven't taught on yet here at this church in any detail, and I think it, this presents us with a perfect opportunity to do so. For those that want to learn more, just look out for that Sunday evening series on how we got the Bible in the first place. Covering everything will give us all the time we need to cover how we got the Bible, from inspiration to canonization to transmission to translation Put all four together, how we got the Bible in our hands today. So there's more that needs to be said than we can say this morning. I want to at least make you aware of the questions. Answers will come in a Sunday evening series. Much more to come. But for now, let's just see if we can first and foremost figure out what's going on with the ending of Mark. And through that, you'll still get quite an introduction to the reliability of the Bible you hold in your hands. That's what we're going to do. It's an ambitious final sermon for Mark, but that's what you get. When you preach through Mark, you're going to hit the ending. And here we are. Well, to start, I needed to begin by telling you a thing or two about ancient manuscripts. I hope that's not too boring for you because we have to talk about ancient manuscripts. As you know, the apostles of the early church, they wrote a bunch of books and letters. We believe these to be the authoritative, inspired words of God, the original writings. That's its own study, though. That's called the inspiration of Scripture. Then these writings were recognized and collected by the early church, put together in a bundle, call it the New Testament. That's its own study. It's called the canonization of Scripture. Those studies we'll have to save for a later time. But inspiration and canonization tell us how we got the original Bible back in the first few centuries A.D. They don't really tell us how that Bible came to our hands today with our English copy. That is left to the studies of transmission and translation, is what they're called. And I'll tell you how that worked. So the apostles, they wrote their letters. Those were collected together in the New Testament. Okay, fine. These letters, though, were then copied many, many times. Why were they copied so much? 
Well, from, from the very beginning, Christians recognized this group of letters as being authoritative, inspired, the word of God. And so every church, even every rich believer, wanted their own copy. Only the rich could afford a copy. Either way, though, thousands of copies were made all throughout the ancient world. And this process of the original writings being copied over and over again, that's called the transmission of Scripture. In addition to transmission, though, the apostolic writings were also translated. Because they all were written in Greek. Well, a lot of people didn't speak Greek back then, nor do we today, most people. So very early on, you had thousands of Greek copies plus translations just floating around the ancient world. Now today, our collection of these New Testament manuscripts is quite profound. Only a fraction have survived, but still, just with the Greek manuscripts alone of the New Testament, we have over 5,300 copies, dating from the 2nd through 15th centuries. That's not all. What about those non-Greek manuscripts, the translations? You add in the Syriac, the Latin, the Coptic, Armenian, Gothic, Arabian, many more versions. And we add about 20,000 more manuscripts that we possess of the New Testament. Still not done, though, because you also have a ton of quotations by the early church fathers. They wrote a lot of stuff, and in their writings, they quoted the New Testament a lot. Just take seven of the most prolific early church writers. That would be Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tertullian, Hippolytus, and Eusebius. You know those guys, right? You know all those guys. But you combine just their seven writings, and among them we can add an additional 36,000 references to the New Testament. In fact, you can reconstruct the New Testament alone just from their quotes, and then some. So as you can see, you put all this together, we have tens of thousands of ancient witnesses to the text of the New Testament. That's a lot. These numbers are more impressive when they're contrasted with other works of antiquity. The second best attested ancient work is Homer's Iliad with 643 manuscripts. But they all date over a thousand years after Homer was even alive. In fact, the vast majority of ancient works have fewer than 10 surviving manuscripts. For example, Plato, all of his works survive in just seven manuscripts. And they date 1,300 years after Plato. Herodotus' history has eight copies coming 1,350 years later. Caesar's Gallic Wars has 10 copies, but they come 900 years after Caesar lived. That's a few copies and a big gap of time. You contrast that just with the, just with the Greek transcripts, the 5,300 Greek manuscripts, hundreds of which date within one or two centuries of the apostles, and there's really no comparison. So already you can see how the New Testament is the best attested ancient document by a mile. Nothing from the ancient world comes to us today with such integrity as the New Testament. Still, as great as these numbers are, some people are troubled by the fact that we still don't possess the autographs. That word means the original copies themselves. And that's true. We don't. Those have all perished in history. From fires to Roman persecution to wear and tear, the original parchments didn't make it. But this leads some people to question, if we don't possess the original writings, how can we be sure that what we read today is what the apostles really wrote? That's a good question. It's a very fair question. The answer comes through the science of what's called textual criticism. Textual criticism. What is textual criticism? Well, it's a study of ancient manuscripts to determine which are original, which are authentic. 
And when it comes to the New Testament, when you study these thousands of manuscripts, and you take into special consideration the earlier ones as well, there's so many that it becomes obvious how these copies were all eventually derived from the same source. So then it's just a study of tracing backwards these copies in time to reconstruct the source. The record of manuscripts we have, it's so substantial that it leaves little doubt as to what the original said. The copies we have are amazingly consistent and that they mostly all say the same thing. Now to that you might say, hey, what do you mean by mostly? Are you saying there are differences in some of the ancient manuscripts we have? Yes, there are. There are differences. These are known as variants. Variants. But it's important you understand the nature of these differences we have in these manuscripts, these variants. Don't get the impression that with these differences, they're, they're massive differences, like we have two or three totally different versions of Mark floating around. That's not how it is. Rather, the vast majority of variants in the manuscripts, they're basically, like today, we, you'd call a typo. Remember, they didn't have photocopiers or printing presses. All this copying was done by hand. Naturally, mistakes or errors crept into the copies. But through textual criticism, it's really actually not hard to identify and correct the typos. It's like if you had 10 photocopies, the first two are clear, the last eight have a thumbprint in them. Well, you know the thumbprint wasn't part of the original, and you can identify where it was inserted, and you can take it out to recapture the original. Likewise, the vast majority of variants in the manuscripts can be easily eliminated. What kind of errors are we talking about? Well, imagine you had to copy something by hand a thousand times. What could go wrong? Well, you have errors of the eye. That's where a scribe was copying a line, and his, his eye skipped the next line and just went to the line after. So you have a whole line missing. Very easy to correct. You have errors of the ear. If someone was dictating a, a script to a scribe, some words sound the same and can get them confused. For example, in 1 Corinthians 13.3, one manuscript changes kalthesomai, he burns, with kalchesomai, he boasts. In Greek, they sound nearly the same. So you can see how those words were confused. Now, there's obviously a lot more to it, but as you really get into the science of textual criticism, you find that the vast majority of variants in our manuscripts they're actually rather trivial. Textual scholars find that 99.9% of the reconstructed New Testament is free from any errors or concerns, which means that 99.9% of the New Testament was transmitted down to us without any real variation. And that's amazing fidelity for an ancient document. And with that fidelity, it leaves no doubt that what we have is a fully accurate copy of the original writings of the apostles. But we're still not done, because I know some of you are probably like me. You hear that number, 99.9%. Sounds good, that's a good number. But if you're like me, you're thinking, what about that 0.1%? Because when it comes to the Bible, we're looking for 100% confidence, right? So even if we can reconstruct the New Testament with 99.9% accuracy to the original, that still leaves us a short list of passages, maybe 50 or so, where there's some question as to what the original said. And that's true. That doesn't mean we don't have what the original text said. It just means there is a question. We have a choice between a handful of manuscripts as to what, which is representative of the original. But again, this is where that science of textual criticism comes back into play. So stay with me. We'll take it a little bit further here. Let's say you have a couple of ancient manuscripts and they have some differences. How do you determine which is the original one, the authentic one? Well, I'll give you the summary version here, but 
they would start with external evidence. External evidence. For example, you look at your manuscripts, which one's older? The older one is usually better because it's closer to the original. Also, which one is found in more places? Which one's more geographically diverse? That one's also usually better. It was spread out all over the place as opposed to just one place. So, for example, if you have a variant, it's found in one manuscript from Armenia in the 10th century only, and nowhere else, no place else, well, that was pretty clearly added later. They also take into consideration internal evidence. It's all about getting into the mind of the scribe and the author. Here, for example, the more difficult reading is preferred because a scribe is far more likely to smooth out or improve a reading than to make it more difficult. They're likely to make something sound better than to make it sound worse. I'll give you an easy example. Remember when Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Remember when he said that? Well, there is a few manuscripts from the 11th century, and the word for camel has been replaced with the word for rope. These words are very similar in Greek. Camelos, camel, camelos, rope. So which one, which one is it? What's the, what's the correct copy here? Well, the external evidence is very clear. All, all the early manuscripts, all of them have camel. And those are much earlier than the 11th century. Furthermore, the internal evidence is also clear. Camel is the harder reading. You can see why a scribe would change it to a rope because he's trying to soften up the verse because otherwise it sounds like Jesus is saying it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom. And that was his point. It's actually impossible for anyone to enter on their own, but that's a whole different topic. The point is camel is clearly the original rendering. Now granted, this is a very simplified example, but this is basically how textual criticism works. Now, take it back to that 0.1% of manuscripts, of variants, about which there's some question. Well, here we use the science of textual criticism to sort them out one by one, case by case basis, resolving any discrepancies. And through this, as a result, we can be confident that the Greek New Testament we have today is a faithful, accurate, reliable, and trustworthy copy of the authentic writings of the New Testament. And this is required for inspiration. A copy of scripture is inspired only to the degree that it reflects the original. And so this is why we have to do the hard work of going back to the original, studying the manuscripts we have. Now, really quick, I know some of you are probably also wondering, why would God do this? Right? Why would, why would God not have the original writings preserved? That would make it easier, it seems like. Why let the original writings get lost? Well, in this, I believe you actually find some of the hidden wisdom of God. For one, letting the originals perish prevents them from being becoming relics that people would worship. We know man is prone to do that. But more importantly, consider this. Letting the originals perish, ironically, protects them. That's strange. How, how can that be? Well, you have to think, if the early church clung to the original writings like relics, it would be very easy to tamper and change God's word forever. You know, back then, people didn't have their own personal copies. You relied on the copy of your local church. If there was only one copy, it would be very easy for whoever possessed that one copy, whoever had the power, to change a word here, a word there, and forever change God's word for everybody. They would have all that power. However, by letting the originals perish and replacing them with tens of thousands of copies, it actually ensures their fidelity. 
Because even though one person might take a copy and change it, and they did, still, the church at large had thousands of copies of the original, and so it left no doubt what the original really said. In fact, back then, in the first few centuries, there were counterfeit writings circulating, but that's how the church guarded against them, even back then. And we today are basically doing the same thing through what we call textual criticism. All right, so there you have, okay, you went back to school for 20 minutes there. There's your basic introduction to textual criticism. I know it can be a lot, but it is through that study that that's where we derive our confidence in God's word today because you have to go back to the manuscripts. Do we have the right ones? Okay, we'll leave that there for now. Now we have to ask, okay, what does this have to do with Mark's ending? What about Mark? Well, the end of Mark's gospel is part of that 0.1% of those verses we have where there's some question as to what the original text said. In fact, the ending of Mark, it's actually the largest example in the New Testament of any textual variant. Most of the 30 to 40 passages that there is some question of the original, there are a difference of one word, one phrase, even one letter, and they can be mostly easily resolved. But here with Mark, we have the potential addition or subtraction of 12 whole verses. That's a, that's a big variant. And so we have to ask, well, where did Mark's gospel originally end? That's our question now. So why don't, we, why don't we find out? Let's start actually by reading the verses. Let's at least read what they say, right? So if you're still in Mark 16, which you should be, let's, let's actually just start by reading Mark 16, 9 through 20. It says, now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along their way to the country. They went away and reported to the others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves, as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. And then the bonus, it says, and they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Mark's special ending. Nobody argues here that these verses form a much more theologically rich and satisfying ending to his gospel. I mean, that's true. There's more in here, resurrection appearances. It's a more satisfying ending to Mark. But the question we must ask is, did Mark write these verses or not? Why is this even a question? Well, some of our ancient manuscripts have these verses. Some do not. So there we have a question. In fact, it gets even more divergent with Mark's ending. Some manuscripts end verse 8. Some of them have only what's called the short ending. That's that little verse in italics. 
Some of them have the longer ending, that's 9 through 20. Some of them have both combined, what you see in your text today. So obviously, look, it's, it's obvious, either Mark wrote them or he did not. If he did write them, why were they left out of some copies? If he did not write them, why were they added later? Well, now, since I gave you that little introduction to textual criticism, at least you can follow along as I argue for one of these endings. Why don't we go ahead and apply, real quick, some of the principles and practices of textual criticism to Mark's ending. It's the only way to do this. I'm sorry. It's just, you got to get a little scholarly here. But as you do this, it actually becomes pretty obvious with Mark's ending that Mark did not write verses 9 through 20. Let's start off with external evidence. Now, it's true. A majority of manuscripts have verses 9 through 20, but they all came much later, or most of them at least. However, Mark's ending is missing from many of our oldest and most reliable manuscripts. That includes Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus. I'm sure you guys have read, read those yourselves, you know, many times. Those are two of our most ancient and complete and reliable manuscripts. Many more as well. They're also missing from a bunch of the old versions. Remember the, the non-Greek translations? The old, Greek, or the old Latin, Syriac, Armenian, and Ethiopic versions. To name a few, those versions, the old ones, they're missing these verses. So that's significant. Also, many of the church fathers appear to have no knowledge of this ending. Clement and Origen seem unaware of its existence. Jerome said, quote, almost all Greek copies do not have this concluding portion, end quote. Eusebius likewise said, quote, the most accurate copies and almost all the copies, end quote, ended with the words of chapter 16, verse 8. That's a very significant testimony coming from the early church fathers where they recognized this isn't here, but a few, a few manuscripts do have it. Now, throw in some internal evidence. When you do some hardcore study, you compare verses 9 through 20 with the rest of Mark, you start to see a lot of these differences. For example, in these last 12 verses, all of a sudden, we have 17 brand new words that Mark has never used before. Just all these non-Markan words start showing up. The word for first day of the week in verse 9, it's different from the word that was just used in verse 2. This is kind of odd. You look at the style, and it's noticeably different than Mark's very simple writing. Other oddities stand out. The transition from verse 8 to verse 9, that's where the change takes place. It's just an off transition. Verse 9 begins with the conjunction day in Greek. It implies a connection to the preceding, but there's this very abrupt subject change from verse 8 to verse 9. They don't actually fit together. The subject changes from the women to Jesus. Also, verse 9, the method of identifying Mary Magdalene is quite unusual because we've already been introduced to Mary twice in Mark's gospel. But here it appears like she's being reintroduced to us as if we've never met her before, identified as being the one from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. Why didn't Mark introduce her like that the first time that he mentioned her back in chapter 15? It just seems like she's being reintroduced by someone else. Also, if this were genuine, we would expect to see some mention of Peter and Galilee in the resurrection appearances. Because after all, that was the main thrust of the angel in verse 7. He'll see you in Galilee and he'll and go tell Peter. But actually, Peter and Galilee are totally absent from verses 9 through 20. Rather, these verses read like a compiled summary of Christ's resurrection appearances. In fact, every verse here can be pinned to another passage in the Gospels or Acts. 
Their Mary Magdalene account is just like John chapter 20. The Great Commission smacks of Matthew 28. The Emmaus Road story is just like Luke chapter 24. The supernatural gifts found all throughout Acts. And so the more you study this, the more it becomes actually plain to see these verses were not original to Mark. The external evidence, the internal evidence, they weigh pretty heavily against it. It's true. Some early copies had these verses, but they were undoubtedly added by a scribe early on to try and tie up the perceived loose ends in Mark's account. You see, here's the thing. It'd be very difficult to explain why a scribe would take out these verses if they were in Mark's original writing. Why would he take them out? But at the same time, it's very easy to understand why a scribe would add them if they were missing. Because, again, Mark ends so abruptly. He doesn't include any resurrection appearances. He doesn't actually show us the risen Jesus. It's not satisfying in that regard. So it's very easy to see why some early theologians and scribes borrowed from other resurrection accounts and added a more theologically satisfying ending. So we can conclude with much confidence that verse 8 is the real ending of Mark's gospel. Verses 9 through 20 were added later. Now you might ask, what do we make of verses 9 through 20 then? Well, they're not to be treated as inspired scripture. But that doesn't mean they're not profitable in some way. Since mostly everything here is derived from other scripture, you basically have an early biblical theology of the church, which is great. In fact, we see from these verses what the early church really believed and how they championed the physical resurrection of Jesus from the very beginning. It actually gives us a lot of insight into the early church. Very consistent, actually. That said, you would not want to build any theology off of these verses alone. Every year, it seems like a few of those snake-handling Christians die, and it comes from this. They have a misuse and a misinterpretation of Mark's ending, which leads to their folly. Now, to wrap things up, just one question left then. If this really is the end, if verse 8 is really the ending of Mark, well, how do we make sense of it? Because we still have the issue that, okay, if that's the ending, it's really abrupt. It just halts on the brakes and we're done. How do we make sense of Mark's ending? For this reason, some have suggested maybe Mark intended to do like a volume two, like Luke and Acts. There's going to be a Mark part two, but there's no evidence for that. It's just conjecture. Rather, it's best to see verse 8 as the intended ending of Mark's gospel. And only when you study Mark's gospel in detail, I'm talking verse by verse, like we've done for almost three years. Only then, you put it all together, does his ending really make sense. In fact, I love how Mark ends with verse 8. And let me tell you why. Most people are dissatisfied with Mark's ending because it ends on a note of fear. Look at verse 8 again. You have the women, they're running away from the tomb after seeing the angel. They're trembling. Astonishment has gripped them. They're literally shaking. Their bodies are shaking as they run away. And then it says, they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And that's it. Their fear gets the last word in the gospel. And you think, how can that be right? How can a note of fear and astonishment become the last word in what's supposed to be the good news of Jesus? How does that fit? It seems odd to end on a note of fear. However, what if I told you that this ending fits perfectly with Mark's pattern? If there's a pattern here, that would make it far less unusual, right? And indeed, it's not until you do a detailed word study of Mark that this ending makes perfect sense. Mark is writing to show you how amazing 
Jesus is. Let me explain that. Literally, Mark takes just about every Greek word and synonym for amazement or astonishment or reverential fear, and he just piles them into his gospel to describe the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is so amazing. He's trying to show you that over and over again. Let's do this. Turn to Mark 1. Go back to the first chapter. I found nine different words used 35 times in Mark's gospel to describe the amazing Jesus. They occur in just about every chapter, and I want to give you a sampling. So I'll read them. If you're fast, you can follow along. And watch this. It starts in Mark 1.22. He did some teaching on the Sabbath, and then it says, They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as a scribe's. Chapter 2, verse 12. you got, you got to go fast with me here. Chapter 2, verse 12. He heals a paralyzed man. And verse 12 says, And he got up and immediately picked up his pallet and walked and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they all were amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Mark chapter 4, verse 41. It's with the disciples. He stills the sea. Remember that? Verse 41 says, They became very much afraid. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 5, verse 33. This woman comes up to Jesus. She merely touches his cloak and she's healed. Verse 33 says, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what happened to her, came and fell down before him and and told him the whole truth. Later in the chapter, verse 42 of Mark 5. He raises a girl from the dead. Verse 42 says, immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. Chapter 6, verse 15, 51. This is where Jesus not just calms a storm, but walks on water. So chapter 6, verse 50, it says, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Mark chapter 7, verse 37. This is where he heals a deaf mute. Verse 37 says, They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Mark chapter 9, verse 6, the transfiguration. That's a big one. How did the disciples respond? Verse 6 says, Peter did not know how to answer for they became terrified. There's many more. Even his enemies were amazed by him. Chapter 15, verse 5, says Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. This is just a sampling. But again, these are all the same word or synonyms in the Greek. What is Mark doing? What is he trying to show? This is unique to his gospel. You don't get this in the other gospels. Only he piles on these words like this to describe the reaction of the people. Christ's teaching, his person, his work, his death, they're all amazing. That's what he's trying to show. And you know what's most amazing of all? His resurrection. And so, Mark 16, verse 5, says of the women entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And finally, verse 8, They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. They said nothing to anyone for they were 
afraid. So you see this ending, it may not be what you expect, but when it comes to Mark's gospel, he's just doing what he's been doing for 16 chapters. This is his style. Just think, just about every story he told of Jesus, every little vignette of Jesus doing something great, they all end with what? People declaring how amazing he is. They're terrified and a reverential fear, but they're also amazed because he is amazing in the truest sense of the word. He really is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior. And you are meant to be amazed by him too. And what is more amazing than his resurrection? So for Mark, this is a perfect ending. We have testimony that Jesus rose from the angel himself. The angel said, verse 6, he's not here. He has risen. And for Mark, for these women, for us, that should be enough to leave us amazed. At the same time, I'll say the abruptness of this ending, I think in a unique way, calls us also to respond. It's almost like Mark is inviting us into this story. Because after all, the good news of Jesus did not end with his resurrection. It actually was just beginning. And it's still going on. And as you encounter the risen Jesus by faith today, you jump into that good news. And so I believe Mark is calling us to faith with his ending because we are very much in the position of these women who came to the empty tomb. What's our position? We have received divine testimony that he is risen, but we haven't seen him with our eyes. And that's exactly the position they were in in that moment. Now, granted, later on they would see him, so will we. But for now, we are left only with the testimony that Jesus has risen. That was enough to leave them amazed. Is it enough for you? The risen Jesus said, Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. So what about you? Do you believe? This ending is definite in that Jesus rose, but it's open-ended in that we don't know what happens next from Mark. Yet this forces us to stop, think, and eventually respond. Do you believe this report that Jesus has risen from the dead? Which also means, do you believe everything? Because as we studied in the past weeks, the resurrection is the linchpin of the faith. Do you believe he really died on that cross to pay for your sins, to wipe out your debt of guilt before God, and that believing in him only can you have life in his name? Do you really believe? The testimony is clear, consistent, and profound, even after 2,000 years. But how will you respond to Mark's gospel, his good news? You know, to finish up, with all this study on amazement in Mark, you might be interested to know there's one time where Jesus himself was amazed. That's kind of strange, right? What would amaze Jesus? He's the guy walking on water. So what would he find amazing? You'd want to know, right? Well, Mark tells us back in chapter 6, verse 6, the one time where Jesus was amazed. And what was it? Mark 6, 6 says he was amazed or rather, he wondered at their unbelief. This was in Nazareth, his hometown, where he grew up. They knew him. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. Yet they, of all people, refused to believe. That is amazing. You know, even if we had the original writings today, many people still wouldn't believe. Even if Jesus were alive today, still walking on water, many still would not believe. They didn't believe back then because they're hardened in their sin. 
Realizing this, just beware such a hardened response. As we learned last time, ultimately people, they don't reject because they don't have enough information or they don't have enough evidence or they don't have enough manuscripts. No, people reject because they don't want to give up their sin and submit to this risen Jesus as Lord. The truth of God is evident in their hearts. And when you read scripture for yourself, the truth of his word will become evident to you as well. So see your own sin. See how it threatens to capture your heart and sink you forever. But also see here Jesus, crucified yet risen. There is good news to be had in this dark, empty, meaningless, fallen world. But that good news is only in one place. It's in Christ, dead yet alive. So will you believe in him today? This has been the message of Mark's gospel time and time again. So it's a fitting way to conclude that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, even from Mark's gospel, you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this almost three-year journey through Mark's gospel. Your word, it's all so true and precious to us and we rest our lives on it, Lord. We see in your wisdom how you have brought this word to us from its original inspiration to putting it together in a canon to transmitting it, copying it, and eventually translating it to English for us today. And there's a whole science behind this that is very fascinating and instructive. We pray we're built up by knowing your word even more. But at the same time, Lord, we we rest our faith in you, in, in your son, that we have We have seen him in our hearts, so to speak. We have experienced him. We have come to know him in our hearts as the risen Lord. Your existence, God, is evident to us in the world around us. It is without denying. Your word rings true when we read it, and Christ has invaded our lives and changed us forever. And by this, we we ultimately know you are there. You are real and you are Savior. For those who don't, Lord, I help you bring them to submission to the truth. Evidence might help their minds. Studying manuscripts might help them. But, Lord, at the same time, they need to at the end of the day, bow their knee to this risen Lord. In him is the only hope for life and life everlasting. This, this world is so fallen and futile. It's plain to see, but only in Christ is the hope for life here and life hereafter. So give them that hope. May we leave rejoicing, though, in the hope that we have in Christ. We can say with him, it is well with our soul because of all that he has done for us. And we want to give you that praise and glory now, Lord. Thank you for this time and our study together. Bless us as we depart. In Christ's name we pray, amen.